Hello friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Cameron. We're now up to the 8th story on the 3rd day, and I did start recording it. However, unfortunately I discovered that I was just too uncomfortable with the main premise of the story, being that a woman was so deeply unsatisfied with her half-witted husband that she conspired with an abbot to take advantage of his credulity so that he would be less jealous and she could cheat on him more easily. I just found that whole thing kind of gross, so we're skipping it. So instead we're going to go to the ninth story and hope it's more palatable to me. When Loretta's tale had ended, the Queen, not wishing to revoke Dionea's privilege to tell his story last, and realising that she herself was the only person left to speak, began without waiting to be urged and with all her considerable charm she addressed her companions as follows. How is anyone to tell a better story than the one we have just heard from Loretta? It was certainly fortunate for us that hers was not the first, for otherwise we would have derived little pleasure from the ones that followed, which is what I fear will happen with the last two stories of today. However, for what it is worth, I am going to tell you a story on the topic we proposed. In the Kingdom of France there once lived a nobleman who was called Isnard, Count of Roussillon and who, being something of an invalid, always kept a doctor named Master Gerard of Narbonne at his beck and call. The Count had only one child, a little boy of exceedingly handsome and pleasing appearance called Bertrand, who was brought up with other children of his own age, among them the daughter of the doctor I have mentioned, whose name was Gillette. Gillette was head over heels in love with this Bertrand, being more passionately attached to him than was strictly proper in a girl of so tender an age so that when, on the death of the Count, Bertrand was committed to the guardianship of the King and had to go away to Paris, she was driven to the brink of despair. Shortly afterwards, her own father died, and if she could have found a plausible excuse, she would gladly have gone to Paris in order to visit Bertrand. But she could see no way of doing it without causing a scandal, for she had inherited the whole of her father's fortune, and was kept under constant surveillance. Even after reaching marriageable age, she still could not forget Bertrand, and without offering any explanation she rejected numerous suitors whom her kinsfolk had urged her to marry. Now, because she had heard that Bertrand had become an exceedingly handsome young man, the flames of her love were raging more fiercely than ever when she happened to hear that the King of France had been suffered from a chest tumour, which, because it had been treated maladroitly, had left him with a fistula that was causing him endless trouble and discomfort. Numerous doctors had been consulted, but he had not yet succeeded in finding a single one who was able to cure him. On the contrary, they had merely made matters worse, with the result that the king had abandoned all hope of recovery, and was refusing to accept further advice or treatment from anyone. The girl was filled with joy to hear these tidings, for she realised that not only did they give her a legitimate reason for going to Paris, but if the illness of the king was what she thought it was, she would have little difficulty in obtaining Bertrand's hand in marriage. Using the knowledge she had acquired in the past from her father, she proceeded to make up a powder from certain herbs that were good for the ailment she had diagnosed, then she rode off to Paris. Before doing anything else, she contrived to see Bertrand, after which she obtained an audience of the king and asked his permission to examine his malady. Not knowing how to refuse a young woman of such evident charm and beauty, the king allowed her to do so, and she knew at once that she could make him recover. Sire, she said, if you are willing, with God's help I can cure you of this malady within the space of a week, 
without causing you any bother or discomfort. The king refused to take her seriously, saying to himself, How could a young woman succeed in doing something that has defeated the skill and knowledge of the world's greatest physicians? He therefore thanked her for her good intentions, adding that he had resolved to decline all further medical advice. Sire, said the girl, you are sceptical of my powers because I am young and because I am a woman, but I would have you know that my powers of healing do not depend so much upon my knowledge as upon the assistance of God and the expertise of my late father, Master Gerard of Narbonne, who in his day was a famous physician. Who knows, thought the king to himself, perhaps this woman has been sent to me by God. Why not find out what she can do? After all, she claims she can cure me in next to no time without causing me any discomfort. And by reasoning thus, he persuaded himself that he should put her claims to the test. Young woman, he said, suppose we were to break our resolve only to find that you fail to effect a cure. What penalty would you consider appropriate? Sire, replied the girl, keep me under guard, and if I do not cure you within a week, order me to be burned. That's a bit extreme. But what reward shall I have if I make you recover? If you do that, replied the king, then since you appear to be unmarried, we shall provide you with a fine and noble husband. Sire, said the girl, I would certainly like you to give me a husband, but only the one I shall ask for, and you may rest assured that I will not ask you for one of your sons or any other royal personage. The king gave her his promise forthwith, and the girl began to apply her remedy, restoring him to health with time to spare. Whereupon the king, feeling he had quite recovered, said to her, Young woman, you have clearly won yourself a husband. In that case, sire, she replied, I have won Bertrand of Roussillon, with whom I have been deeply in love since the days of my childhood. It was no laughing matter to the king that he should be obliged to give her Bertrand, but not wishing to break the promise he had given her, he sent for him and said, Bertrand, you are now fully trained and mature, and it is our pleasure that you should return to govern your lands, taking with you the young lady whom we have decided you should marry. So one of the things that's going on here, just so you know, I like interrupting the narrative with this stuff, is that it was fairly common in, in medieval Europe that when an heir was orphaned to one of the great estates, the monarch became their, their guardian. And this had a few useful side effects for the monarch. Now, of course, the lords could trust that the monarch would presumably raise and, and educate the heir according to his station, that he would be exposed to other people worth networking with, and that was all to the good, and of course would have close ties with the king's household. These were, these were good advantages for the heirs who ended up in this position. But for the monarch, it meant that to a certain extent, they had control over those um, the lands of that of that heir until the monarch decided they were ready to take them over. So in this way, they became the temporary custodian and got the tax and got the rent and all the other advantages you get of having land in your hands. And it was generally very convenient for them as a money-making exercise. So the king here is not just, you know, damn, I love Bertrand so much, he's such a good kid, it's a real shame to give him up. It's also, damn, having control of the Roussillon estate has been really convenient for me, but if he's getting married, you know, I've got to treat him as an adult now. 
Another thing that happened in a similar vein was that certain noble women, and I can't remember the exact qualifying factors, when widowed or, or sometimes orphaned or things like that, they became not exactly property of the king any more than they would usually be property of their kinsmen, but it was the king's decision that the king got was the king's permission was needed for them to to get married and since heiresses carried a lot of wealth with them this was a very very powerful card to play in terms of building alliances giving power to their supporters taking it away from their detractors it was a, a means for the monarchs to put their thumb on the scales so back to the story. And who, my lord, may this young lady be? said Bertrand. She is the one who has restored our health with her physic, replied the king. Bertrand knew the girl, and had thought her very beautiful on seeing her again, but knowing that her lineage was in no way suited to his own noble ancestry, he was highly indignant, and said, But surely, sire, you would not want to marry me to a she-doctor? Heaven forbid that I should ever accept a woman of that sort for a wife. The young lady has demanded your hand in marriage as her reward for restoring our health, said the king. Surely you would not want us to break the promise we have given her. Sire, said Bertrand, you have the power to take away everything I possessed and hand me over to anyone you may choose, for I am merely your humble vassal. But I can assure you that I shall never rest content with such a match. Of course you will, said the king, for she is beautiful, intelligent, and deeply in love with you. Hence we are confident that you will be much happier with her than you would ever have been with a lady of loftier birth. Bertrand said no more, because basically he wasn't going to persuade the king at this point, and the best thing he could do with the situation is to acquiesce quietly. And the king gave orders for a splendid wedding feast to be arranged. And so, much against his will, on the appointed day and in the presence of the king, Bertrand married the girl who loved him more dearly than her very life. Having already made up his mind what he should do, as soon as the wedding was over he sought the king's permission to depart, saying that he wished to return to his own estates and consummate his marriage there. So he duly set out on horseback, but instead of going to his estates he came to Tuscany, where he learned that the Florentines were waging war against the Sienese and resolved to offer them his assistance. The Florentines welcomed him with open arms and placed him in command of a sizable body of men, paying him a good stipend and for a long time thereafter he remained in their service. His bride was far from happy with the turn events had taken, and in the hope of persuading him to return to his estates by her wise administration, she went to Roussillon, where all the people received her as their rightful mistress. Since there had been no counts to govern the territory for some little time, she was faced on her arrival with nothing but confusion and chaos. But being a capable woman, she applied herself with great diligence to the task in hand, and soon had everything restored to order thus winning the profound respect and devotion of her subjects, who were enormously pleased by her endeavours and strongly critical of the Count because of his indifference to her. Having fully restored the Count's domain to order, the lady communicated this fact to her husband by way of two knights, beseeching him to inform her whether it was on her account that he was deserting his lands, in which case she would go away in order to please him. He answered them very brusquely, saying, "'She may do whatever she likes,' For my own part, I shall go back to live with her when she wears this ring upon her finger, and when she is carrying a child of mine in her arms. 
The ring was very dear to him, and he never let it stray from his finger on account of certain magical powers which he had been told that it possessed. The marriage having not been consummated is not fully complete. It's possible to annul it. So even though they're married, they're sort of... I don't want to say they're in the 30-day trial period, but they're kind of in the 30-day trial period. It's much easier to get out of a marriage before it's consummated. So Bertrand here is basically saying, yeah, I'm never going to consummate the marriage with you, so you're never properly going to be my wife, and it's always going to be really easy for me to break up the marriage properly so I can marry someone better. He's being a dick. The knights realised it was virtually impossible for the lady to comply with either of these harsh restrictions, but no amount of reasoning on their part could shift Bertrand from his resolve, and they therefore returned to their mistress to acquaint her with his answer. Their tidings filled her with dismay, but after giving some thought to the matter, she decided to try and find out how and where these two things might be accomplished, thus enabling her to win back her husband. Having carefully considered what she must do, she called together a group of the leading notables of those parts, gave them a highly succinct and moving description of all she had done out of her love for the Count, and pointed out the results of her endeavours. Then she told them that she had no intention of protracting her stay if this entailed the Count's continued exile. On the contrary, she meant to spend the rest of her days in making pilgrimages and performing works of charity for the good of her soul. Finally, she asked them to take over the defence and administration of the territory, and to inform the Count that she had left him its exclusive and unencumbered title. Then she vanished from the scene, having resolved never to set foot in Rousselon again. As she spoke, her worthy hearers shed countless tears and pleaded with her over and over again to change her mind and stay with them, but all to no avail. Having bidden them farewell, she set out with one of her maidservants and a man who was her cousin, both of whom were dressed like herself in pilgrim's garb, and taking with her a goodly quantity of money and precious jewels. She had told no one where she was going, but in fact she made straight for Florence without pausing to rest. On her arrival, she chanced upon a little inn that was kept by a kindly widow. There she quietly took up her abode in the guise of a poor pilgrim, eager for news of her husband. It so happened that on the very next day she saw Bertrand go riding past the inn on horseback with his men, and although she recognised him quite distinctly, she nonetheless inquired who he was from the good lady of the inn. He is a foreign nobleman, replied the hostess. His name is Count Bertrand. He is a great favourite with the Florentines because of his affable and gentlemanly nature, and he is head over heels in love with a young lady living nearby who is nobly bred but poor. Note the distinction here between the unnoble wife, who is nevertheless suitable in all her characteristics, and the noble but poor woman who Bertrand considers more suitable. The fact is that she is a most virtuous girl who is not yet married on account of her poverty, but lives with her mother, a lady of great wisdom and probity. Indeed, but for this mother of hers, it is quite possible that the Count would have already have had his way with the girl. The Countess committed everything to memory, and after giving further thought to each of the things she had heard and building a mental picture of the affair as a whole, she decided on her course of action. And one day, having discovered the name and address of the lady and this daughter of hers who was loved by the Count, she made her way unobtrusively to their house, wearing her pilgrim's habit. The poverty of the two women was immediately apparent to the Countess, who greeted them and asked the lady if she could talk to her in private. The gentlewoman rose to her feet, 
assuring her that she was ready to listen, and led her into another room, where they sat down. Madam, said the Countess, you and your daughter would appear to have fallen on hard times, and I too am dogged by ill luck. But if you so desired, you could perhaps repair your fortunes as well as my own at one and the same time. The lady replied that nothing would please her better than to repair her fortunes without compromising her honour. It is essential that I should be able to trust you, continued the Countess, because if you were to betray my confidence, you would ruin everything for all three of us. You may confide in me as much as you like, said the gentlewoman, for you may rest assured that I shall never betray you. The Countess then disclosed her true identity, and related the whole history of her love from its earliest beginnings, telling her tale so touchingly that the gentlewoman, who had already gleaned some knowledge of the matter from elsewhere, was convinced that she was telling the truth, and began to take pity on her. Having told her all the facts, the Countess continued, This, then, is the tale of my misfortunes. As you have heard, there are two things I must obtain if I am to have my husband, and I know of no one who can help me to obtain them except yourself, if it is true, as I have been led to believe that my husband the Count is deeply in love with your daughter. I know not, madam, whether the Count is in love with my daughter, replied the gentlewoman. He claims to be, certainly. But how will this make it easier for me to assist you? I will tell you, said the Countess, but first of all I want to explain how I intend to repay your assistance. I see that your daughter is beautiful and of marriageable age, but it seems, both from what I have been told and from the evidence of my own eyes, that the impossibility of making a good marriage for her compels you to keep her at home. I therefore propose to reward your services by promptly supplying her, from my own resources, with whatever dowry you think she needs for an honourable marriage. So an interesting note here about dowries. The dowry is the the money that the woman brings with her, the wealth that the woman brings with her into the marriage. And for the upper classes, it was essential. And in Italy in particular, by the 14th century, it had started to be competitive. There was some serious inflation going on in the dowries world. And it got to the point where over, over the period of the Renaissance, members of the Italian upper class, families would start to go destitute because of, you know, and, and be unable to pay these dowries or sometimes because of these dowries. And the 14th and, and 15th century in Italy really being a period where corporate as opposed to personal charity was beginning to spring up. Now, when we're talking about corporate, we're not talking about a, a business in the same way that we think about it. Um, we're talking about religious guilds and confraternities, which are a little bit like a social club with some sort of mutual support and a funeral insurance scheme and stuff like that. And they, they often took on, you know, social uh, community projects to, to benefit the community as a group. And one of these confraternities actually, I think it might have been St. Michael, actually decided that their thing, their charitable work, would be providing dowries to destitute high-class families so that they could give their, their daughters honourable marriages. And critically, providing these dowries in a condition of strict confidentiality. We're talking like 
anonymously dropping the request in a in a in a secret Dropbox sort of thing. No one could ever know that this woman got her dowry through a charity. You couldn't let people know that. But it was very much a thing. There's a a song out there, a 20th century song called The Nouveau Poor, all about British noblemen in the 20th century whose the value of, of their estates have gone down and down and down until they got their titles but very little else to their name. The phenomenon is not exclusively a 20th century one. You did have the problem of poor noblemen and poor noble families seeking out rich matches to save themselves from the fact that their finances just were not holding up. So, the Countess has offered to donate a dowry in exchange for the assistance of this woman and her daughter. The lady, being destitute, was attracted by the offer, but she was also proud of spirit, and she replied, Pray explain to me, madam, in what way I can assist you. If it is honourable for me to further your plans, I shall be glad to do so, and afterwards you may reward me in whatever way you please. Whereupon the countess said, What I require you to do is to send some trustworthy person to inform my husband, the count, that your daughter is prepared to place herself entirely at his disposal, but only on condition that he proves to her that his love is as deep and genuine as he claims. This she will never believe until he sends her the ring which he wears upon his hand, and to which she understands that he is deeply attached. If he sends her the ring, you will hand it over to me, and then you will send him a message to the effect that your daughter is ready to do his bidding, and you will cause him to come here in secret, and, all unsuspecting, lie with me instead of your daughter. Perhaps, by the grace of God, I shall become pregnant, and later on, with my husband's ring on my finger and my husband's child in my arms, I will regain his love and live with him as a wife should live with a husband, and it will all be thanks to you. In the eyes of the gentlewoman, this was no trivial request, for she was afraid lest her daughter's name be brought into disrepute. But after due reflection, she came to the conclusion that it was right and proper for her to assist the good lady to retrieve her husband, for she would be acting in pursuit of a worthy objective, and therefore, placing her trust in the transparent goodness and honesty of the countess, she not only promised to do what was required, but within the space of a few days, proceeding with all necessary secrecy and caution, she had obtained possession of the ring from the count, who was somewhat reluctant to part with it, and achieved the remarkable feat of putting the countess to bed with him in place of her own daughter. In the course of their earliest embraces, to which the count devoted considerable ardour, God so willed that the lady should conceive two sons, as became manifest when the time arrived for her to bring them forth. What lovely elliptical language there! This was not the only occasion, however, on which the gentlewoman arranged for the countess to enjoy her husband's love, for she devised many other such encounters, proceeding with so much secrecy that nobody ever came to know about them. The count went on believing that he had been consorting not with his wife, but with the girl he loved, and before leaving her in the morning he would present her with beautiful and precious jewels, all of which the countess took special care to preserve. Once she perceived that she was pregnant, the countess no longer desired to trouble the gentlewoman any further, and said to her, By the grace of God, my lady, and thanks to your assistance, I now have what I wanted, 
and hence it is time for me to do whatever you want me to do, so that I may take my leave. The gentlewoman insisted that so long as the countess was contented with what she had achieved, then she too was satisfied, and that she had not assisted her in the hope of obtaining any reward, but merely because she had felt it her duty to support so worthy a cause. "'I fully understand,' said the countess, "'and for my own part I have no intention of granting you any reward. I shall give you whatever you ask of me because the cause is worthy and I feel obliged to support it.' "'What a lovely polite fiction!' We're not doing this as any in any sort of transactional way. I just believe in what you're doing and, and want to help you. The gentlewoman was sorely embarrassed, but her needs were great, and she asked for a hundred pounds so that she could marry her daughter. On hearing her ask for so modest a sum, the countess, sensing her embarrassment, gave her five hundred pounds, together with a quantity of fine and precious jewels that probably amounted in value to the same sum again. The gentlewoman, quite overcome, thanked the countess as warmly as she could, after which the countess took her leave of her and returned to the inn. So that Bertrand should have no further reason for sending messages or paying visits to her home, the gentlewoman took her daughter away with her to live with relatives in the country, and shortly afterwards Bertrand was recalled by his nobles and returned home, having been assured that the countess had gone away. On hearing that he had left Florence and returned to his estates, the Countess was overjoyed. She herself remained in Florence until the time came for her confinement, when she gave birth to twin sons who were the image of their father. She took special care to have them properly nursed, and when she considered the time to be ripe, she set out with the children and succeeded in reaching Montpellier without being recognised. There she rested for a few days, making inquiries concerning the Count and his whereabouts, and on learning that he would be holding a magnificent feast for his lords and ladies on All Saints' Day in Roussillon, she too made her way there, still attired in the pilgrim's garb to which she had by now become accustomed. Arriving at the Count's palace, she heard all the lords and ladies talking together prior to sitting at table, and so she made her way up to the hall, still wearing the same clothes and carrying the two infants in her arms, and threaded her way through the guests until, catching sight of the Count, she flung herself at his feet and burst into tears, saying, My lord, behold your unfortunate bride, who has suffered the pangs of a long and bitter exile, so that you could return and settle in your ancestral home. I now beseech you, in God's name, to observe the conditions you imposed upon me through the agency of those two knights I sent to you. Here in my arms I carry not merely one of your children, but two, and here is your ring. So the time has come for you to honour your promise, and accept me as your wife. Oh my god, the shock and awe that would have gone through that feast hall. Everyone is there. Everyone is there. And they're this Count dude. They probably don't know much about the Countess. They've never seen her with him. She's a rumour to them. And she shows up with two kids and says, You sent me away. You haven't accepted me as your wife. These are your kids. Holy shit, they would have been talking about this scandal for fucking years. The Count could scarcely believe his ears, yet had to admit that the ring was his and that the children, since they resembled him so exactly, must also be his. All he could find to say was, How can this have happened? To the utter astonishment of the Count and all the others present, the Countess then related the whole of her story from beginning to end. Well knowing that she was telling the truth and seeing what a handsome pair of children her remarkable persistence and intelligence had produced, the Count could no longer feel hostile towards her, 
and he not only honoured his promise, but endeared himself to his lords and ladies, who were all entreating him to accept and welcome her as his lawful spouse, by helping the countess to her feet, smothering her with kisses and embraces, and recognising her as his lawful wife, at the same time acknowledging the children to be his. And having caused her to change into robes befitting her rank, he gave up the rest of the day to feasting and merrymaking, to the no small pleasure of those present, and all of his vassals who came to hear of it. The festivities continued for several days, and from that time forth, never failing to honour the Countess as his lawful wedded wife, he loved her and held her in the greatest esteem. Now, it should be time for the tenth story, and if the tenth story was tolerable, I would have saved it for another episode. However, the punchline of the tenth story relies on us thinking it funny that someone doesn't realise that what they've been doing counts as sex, and that they are completely ignorant and innocent while having a fair amount of sexual experience. I consider that extremely gross. So Dionneo's story is not being read today. We're going straight to the conclusion of the third day. So aptly and cleverly worded did Dionneo's tale appear to the virtuous ladies that they shook with mirth a thousand times or more. And when he had brought it to a close, the queen, acknowledging the end of her sovereignty, removed the laurel from her head and placed it very gracefully on Philostratos, saying, Now we shall discover whether the wolf can fare any better at leading the sheep than the sheep have fared in leading the wolves. On hearing this, Philostrato laughed and said, Had you listened to me, the wolves would have taught the sheep by n- <clears throat> Right. Um... Had you listened to me, we would be euphemism for having sex right now. But you have not exactly been behaving like sheep, and therefore you must not describe us as wolves. However, you have placed the kingdom in my hands, and I shall govern it as well as I am able. In case any of you have forgotten which one Philostrato is, he's one of the dudes. Allow me to tell you, Philostrato, replied Nephile, that if you men had tried to teach us anything of the sort, you might have learnt some sense from us, as Maceto did from the nuns, and retrieved the... Oh! <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and retrieved the use of your tongues when your bones were rattling from exhaustion. Right, then. On perceiving that the ladies had as many sides as he had arrows, Philostrato abandoned his jesting and turned to the business of ruling his kingdom. Summoning the steward, he asked him to explain how matters stood, after which he discreetly gave him his instructions, consisting of what he thought would be appropriate and agreeable to the company as a whole. So the men too, it seems, begin their reign by setting the logistics of the servants in order. He then turned to the ladies, saying, Charming ladies, ever since I was able to distinguish good from evil, it has been my unhappy lot, owing to the beauty of one of your number, to find myself perpetually enslaved to love. I have humbly and obediently followed all of his rules to the very best of my ability, only to find that I have invariably been forsaken to make way for another. Things have gone from bad to worse for me, and I do not suppose they will improve to my dying day. I therefore decree that the subject of our discussions for the morrow should be none other than the one which applies most closely to myself, namely, those whose love ended unhappily. For my part, I expect my own love to have a thoroughly unhappy ending, 
nor was it for any other reason that I was given, by one who knew what he was talking about, the name by which you address me. And having uttered these words, he rose to his feet, and dismissed them all till supper time. Well, that's nice. I'm miserably in love with one of you, and I've done my best, and it's all turned out badly, and I'm going to be miserable for the rest of life, so tomorrow we can tell stories about people who have been miserable because of love. Charming, Philostrato. Very cheerful. So then they all spend their afternoon surprisingly cheerfully, given Philostrato's depressing speech, and they enjoy the... Oh, they go hunting, they play chess, they sing songs, they have a lovely supper, Loretta sings a song of her own composition, and the king at last calls for lighted torches to be set at regular intervals amongst the lawns and flower beds. And at his behest, Loretta's song was followed by many others, until every star that had risen was beginning its descent, when, thinking it time for them all to retire, he bade them good night and sent them away to their various rooms. Here ends the third day of the Decameron. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>